pray together. Heavenly Father, as we are in your presence now, you are the holy, holy, holy God. May we treat you with the reverence and awe that you deserve. Lord, you are so good to us, despite who we are. We come before you totally undeserving to be here, and yet we are welcomed in. So we thank you and we praise you. And now as we come to your word, would your spirit speak to us, speak to our hearts to encourage us and strengthen us and to, uh, to help us grow to be more like your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is this world coming to? We see pain and sickness and suffering and death all around us. And I'm not just talking about the pandemic that we find ourselves in right now. We see wars and natural disasters, famines and plagues, catastrophes everywhere. Sin and evil always seem to be increasing. The earth is filled with despair. And now we've got murder hordes to boot. Of course, there are still many good things in our world, too, and, and many of those are improving. Though optimism seems rather misplaced when our world is in constant crisis. So what is this world coming to? Well, whenever a question is asked in church or in Sunday school, kids usually know the right answer, right? Jesus? In this case, the Sunday school answer is the correct answer. Whether things get better or worse, we believe world history is going to culminate with Jesus Christ. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And do we ever need to be assured and reassured of this truth these days? Perhaps nowhere is this truth better seen than in the book our Bibles culminate in, Revelation. So if you would, please open your Bibles at home to Revelation or, or pull it up online. It's the last book in the Bible, very easy to find. This is a book that I have gravitated to ever since a young age. I remember listening to Revelation on an audio Bible by cassette tape as a nine or ten year old boy and as I read along I tried to draw out all the imagery described in the book. I was never an artist but this is what Revelation looked like to a nine or ten year old boy. It comes up on the screen maybe. We'll see. Nope. Oh well. Give me a second. We'll, we'll skip it. Alright you've come back to it. Anyway, there were lots of fantastical beasts in my drawing. There we go. And dragons, warfare, destruction, but there also a whole lot of winning as well. Like God gets the victory over and over again. And I was excited to try to express this 
as a child. When it comes to Revelation, some people find it fascinating and fun, like I did as a child. Others find it confusing or bewildering, like I've often found it as an adult. We feel like, what are we supposed to do with this? Graham Goldsworthy says, When the modern prophets and futuristic gurus have finished their extraordinary explanation of every visionary detail and have mapped out the most complex chain of events due to start just about any time now, the ordinary reader is frightened almost out of his wits. His fright is not so much caused by the awful events that are imminent, but by the measure of expertise required to interpret the inter intricacies of this unusual and unfamiliar book. Better leave it to the specialists. There was a, a study done that asked a number of church people what book of the Bible they would most want their pastor to preach on. The answer was Revelation. Maybe because of fascination, maybe because of confusion, they want explanations and answers to their questions. But then the study asked pastors which book they least want to preach on. And the answer again was Revelation. Because it can be scary even for, quote, specialists to approach Revelation. It, it's difficult to know how to interpret it at times. Its meaning is uncertain to us, and it's been controversial at times, and we want to avoid division at all costs. And, and with its strange signs and, and symbolism, it can seem irrelevant at times. All this leads some Christians to obsess over it, while others cower from it, and others ignore it. But while Revelation is a book of warning, it's also a book of, of great comfort and triumph. It's meant to encourage churches facing worldly hardship with heavenly hope. In the book of, of Revelation's human author is most likely the Apostle John, one of Jesus' original disciples, who is now likely an old man in exile as a prisoner. But right away, notice in the first verse, like some of your Bibles might title this the Revelation to John, but that's not John's title for this. In the very first verse, John entitles this book not the Revelation of John, but the Revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The word for revelation here, uh, apocalypsis, means to reveal, unveil, uncover, to disclose. So this is literally the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So what's behind the veil? Jesus is. The main genre of, of revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature a unique and mostly dead historical style of writing filled with lots of vivid imagery and focused on future last things, or at least unseen supernatural things. As Daryl Johnson explains, the foundational conviction of the book is that things are not as they seem, or more exactly, things are not only as they seem. John is convinced, as a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, that there is more to reality than meets the unaided senses. Hence, 
the need for a revelation or an unveiling. But revelation is not only apocalyptic. John specifically calls it a prophecy in verse 3. And he addresses it to a number of churches as a letter or an epistle. And it's also written in a narrative framework with all kinds of poetry sprinkled throughout. So this is a very unique composite genre. And that's part of what makes Revelation so baffling to us today. And sadly ironic as it's meant to reveal. And yet we find its truths mostly concealed to us. So my goal is to, to take this book and to attempt to help us cut through the clutter to the core. I don't want to get bogged down by different interpretive approaches like preterism, historicism, futurism, idealism, or theological positions like pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, and so on. And yes, I am still speaking English. But when we, when we get preoccupied by all these things, it's a classic case for missing the forest for the trees. So I want us to see past the individual trees and take in the forest and help Revelation actually be a, a revelation for us today. David Kamara explains that Revelation is a word given to an embattled church facing compromise within and persecution without, designed to encourage perseverance by pointing to God's rule over history and the hope of a glorious future. It was born out of a real crisis facing God's people and seeks to bring clarity and urgency to living now in light of the invisible transcendent world and the impending future kingdom of God. Think you can use that today? I know I can. So let's begin looking behind the curtain. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. If you think history is some random, uncontrollable sequence of events, think again. It's not. God knows what will happen in the future because he is all-knowing and because he's Lord over it. And he can choose to reveal portions of this future to his people. That God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And when it says that, that Jesus made it known, it literally says he signified or signed, S-I-G-N-ified it. He made it known or communicated it by means of signs and symbols. Now, everything Revelation describes is real. Real history and or real future events. However, that doesn't mean everything is literal. And John's wording right here at the beginning should tell us that this book is a symbolic portrayal of what must soon take place. John wasn't trying to 
confuse or trick people. This is what Jesus wanted to show us. It says Jesus gave, it was given to Jesus to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. John then faithfully bore witness to what he heard and saw. It says who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So we wonder why communicate something so important in symbols and signs that seems so strange to us? Well, think about it. Images and, and symbols paint powerful pictures that engage not just our minds, but our hearts. And Jesus wants more than just our minds. He wants our hearts. One additional thing to notice in this preamble or prelude, prologue, if you will, is that is the heavenly chain of communication going on. The revelation originated from God the Father and was given to God the Son, Jesus, who then made it known by sending his angel who delivered the message to John, who then wrote it down and sent it out to several churches where it would then be read aloud for all believers or God's servants to hear. Verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. So John is clearly saying that this is a very important revelation from God. John wasn't just filling pages with pictures from an overactive imagination. He was a a prophetic channel for a message of divine origin. This came from God. Therefore, we should take it seriously and listen carefully to it. But was anything surprising to you in verse 3? It gives quite the promised blessing, doesn't it? You actually won't find one like it in any other book of the Bible. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. I believe the point of this introduction to Revelation is to tell us that Jesus has been, is currently, and will be unveiled to us in amazing ways. And so the first thing that we can take away here is that Jesus Christ has been revealed to us by testimony for our blessing. Jesus Christ has been unveiled to his people by faithful testimony and for our blessing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is the first of seven, very important numbers, seven Beatitudes in Revelation. Pronouncements of blessings on certain groups of people. And this one is a blessing on those who read aloud and those who hear and heed. So there is something about this book that lends itself to public reading. And there's something about this book that will bless you if you take it to heart. It doesn't specify what the blessing is, but I have a a hunch that it has to do with Jesus. Because the more we see Jesus for who he is, and what he's done, and what he will do, 
And the more we exalt him because of it, obviously the more we'll be blessed. As Danny Aiken puts it, Revelation is certainly a mystery, but it is also a masterpiece. It does not constitute an unsolvable puzzle, but contains a definite promise and a magnificent portrait of the coming again of the Lord Jesus. And this, that alone is an incredible blessing. It can change your life. Now you might think, hearing a prophecy seems simple enough, but how do we keep a prophecy? Like, do we have a, a role to play in the events that are described in this book? We'll see. But I don't think that's what this is referring to. This is more, take the message to heart. And obey, what, obey the principles that are implied in it. See, prophecy in the Bible almost always contains two main features. A, a foretelling of future events and forthtelling of moral instruction. These go hand in hand. It's the same in Revelation. There are predictions made of the future, but there are also intrinsic warnings to repent and to return to God, and plenty of teaching, especially about courage and perseverance. Now, you might be surprised just how much Revelation applies to your life right now. And heeding God's warnings is a way that we can be blessed by keeping His Word. If I said that you would be blessed by following the safety instructions or warnings on a lawnmower or a snowblower, forget what season we're in, <laughs> that makes sense, right? Because the opposite, ignoring those warnings, can lead to disaster. The opposite of blessing. Grant Osborne says that throughout Revelation, the focus is not just on eschatology, the end times, but on ethics. In other words, in light of the fact that the time is near, we are called to live decisively and completely for God. But you might be hung up on those words, the time is near, in verse 3, or, or soon take place, back in verse 1. Because here we are, sitting nearly 20 centuries later, and, and this hasn't taken place, it seems. So, what gives? Well, there are certainly plenty of theories out there, and, and this is hardly the only New Testament text to refer to a soon return of Christ. But in eschatology and apocalyptic writing, and this is why it's important to know that the genre here, the, the future is always viewed as imminent. Like this is a characteristic of this kind of writing. It always sees the future as coming soon. Osborne explains the purpose of such language. He says, The language of imminence intends to draw the reader into a sense of expectation and responsibility. A sense meant to characterize every age of the church. Like, like the number of years since it doesn't, it's rather irrelevant. The time is near, really, because... Jesus has already come near. As John says in another of his letters, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So that was all the, the preamble. Here's John's opening greeting in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia... 
That's who he's writing to, churches that we're going to meet one by one in weeks ahead. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Grace, immense and undeserved blessing, and peace, wholeness, and harmony. These are common greetings of that day, the Greek charis and the Hebrew shalom. But in the Bible, these took on a greater significance as, a, as prayers, as blessings, even as promises, grace, and peace. And before, one could only hope for grace and peace to come from God to us. But now, in Christ, we can live in the realities of grace and peace now. And the source of this grace and peace it says it will be the, the triune God. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's, the, that's clearly referring to God, God the Father to be specific. And then it says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And without getting into the nitty gritty of interpretation here, I'll just tell you this likely is referring to the Holy Spirit, the perfect Holy Spirit, which other Bible versions dub the sevenfold spirit. Remember, that's the number of perfection. And what Revelation 3.1 calls the seven spirits of God. So grace and peace from God the Father, God the Spirit, and as you would expect, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. You see the glimpse behind the veil? It's a powerful one. Jesus is the faithful witness, the, the trustworthy revealer of the Father and God's truth. And in, in our world of misinformation and conspiracies and fake news and biased media and, and twisted stats and science, like we don't know who we can trust. But whatever Jesus says, you can trust. And whatever he reveals is true. He's a faithful witness. There's likely an allusion to his faithful life here as well, as through his perfect life, teachings, and actions, he showed us God's character. Jesus, it says, is also the, the firstborn of the dead, or, or from the dead. Colossians 1 gives him this same title. He rose from the dead. He, he paved the way. But he was the firstborn to do this. In other words, one day many others are going to be reborn from the dead, following him. And Jesus also says, is the ruler of kings on earth. Now this is a direct reference to Psalm 89. A psalm which talks a lot about King David. By the way, Revelation is chock full of references to the Old Testament. An estimated 400 to 600 allusions to the Old Testament in a little, in only a little over 400 verses. Anyway, Psalm 89 views David as an anointed king whose throne will last forever. Psalm 89, 26 and 27 says, He, the king, shall cry to me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. So he be a faithful witness, in other words. And then... And I will make him the firstborn, the highest, or the ruler 
of the kings of the earth. Now, did David's throne last forever? No, not at first. But Jesus descended from David. And the Bible says that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he took up a throne. And now the true and better David rules over all kings on earth right now. And in these words, we really have the essence of the gospel, don't we? Jesus is the, the faithful witness, dead, yet risen, now king. Praise the Lord. Before I go on, I, I want to point out something you may have missed on our first reading. In verse 4, when John says, From him who is and who was and he who is to come. What order should that go in? Past, present, future, you would think. But John goes, present, past, future. Why? I think it's because John wants to emphasize the present state of reality. He wants to comfort Christians that, that God controls not just the past, not just the future, but he controls the present, even when it might not seem like it. That's the emphasis. Though the broader point, of course, is just that God is sovereign over all of it. <laughs> sovereign over all of history. He's not just a God of the past. He's a God of the present and a God of the future. Chuck Swindoll puts it this way, that God is just as much in control of our unknown future and unnerving present as he is of our unpleasant past. Jesus Christ has been revealed to us by testimony for our blessing. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Do you suppose blessings that come from such a God would be worth it? The second half of verse 5, which begins a new paragraph, still talks about the amazing grace of God. The difference is that the focus is no longer on us, but on Him. Like verse 4 and 5 were, was to us from Him. Verse 5 and 6 is to Him from us. Look at it. It says, to Him who loves us and has freed us from from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now here's what I think this reveals to us about Jesus. That Jesus Christ is revealed to us in the gospel for his glory. This is present tense. Jesus is revealed or unveiled to us in his gospel for his glory. The gospel means good news. And in this day of absorbing constant bad news, isn't this balm for the soul? To him 
who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Many of you have likely seen the viral videos put out recently by actor John Krasinski. Seeing the barrage of depressing news, he started a 15-minute news show online called SGN, short for Some Good News. And in it, John highlights in, in humorous and, and heartwarming ways good news of today. Even despite all the bad news, there are still good things happening. So he praises the work of doctors and nurses and other frontline workers, showing how, how people and, and companies have risen to the occasion to produce personal uh, protective equipment. Plays videos of, of acts of kindness or generosity and love and, and so on and so forth. In one video, John talks to a young girl who just finished chemotherapy treatment. And, and he finished by saying, I don't know if I can do another show because you're the best news there is. And you're the mic drop of all good news. But I thought, well, as great as her story is, and it is, that statement is not even close to being true. But what's interesting is in that same video, he briefly played another video that, that actually contained the best news ever, and most didn't even notice it. An 81-year-old man from Alabama was not allowed to visit his wife, who lives in a nursing home suffering from Alzheimer's. And so he would come to her, her window every day and he sang to her from outside the window, and he invited her to, to sing along with him these, these songs and, and hymns that they had obviously just lived their lives singing together. And she would join him in singing. I'm not crying, you're crying. <laughs> but you know what song he sang in this video? Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, Saved a Wretch Like Me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's the best news there is. That's the mic drop of all good news. And people think the good news there was this romantic elderly gentleman. No, that was beautiful. But the good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. His amazing grace to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The good news that, that despite our sin, God loves us. And he, he truly, actually loves us. And in his love, he, he sent his son to die in our place, shedding his blood to free us from our sins. In Christ, he, he freed us from sin's penalty. He's freeing us from sin's power. And one day he will free us from sin's presence. Uh, the bad news is that every human alive needs freeing from our sins. We are 
destined to face God's judgment, which Revelation will warn us at length about. But if you've never been freed, pardoned, redeemed, forgiven of your sins before, Jesus shed his blood for you. So now you can come into his kingdom today by leaving your sins and believing in him. I hope you will. If you need help, please reach out to us online. We'd love to help you. Listen, when, when you turn off John Krasinski's SGN show, the bad news in this world still exists. But Jesus' good news will one day abolish all bad news forever. As he sets up his eternal kingdom, of, of which his people are already a part. As I said in verse 6, and he made us a kingdom. He made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Like this, that first part of the verse is an allusion to Exodus 19.6, where God tells his people, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 1 Peter 2 tells us this now applies to God's people in the church, not just Israel. We are part of a kingdom in that we are under King Jesus' rule and authority. And it says we are priests. Now, priests were meant to lead the way in worship and pointing people to God. Don Carson explains that the Christian church does not have a subset of people called priests, mediators between God and others. We are all priests in that we pray for the world to God, and we are to represent God to the whole world. And in this, we're to be little mediators, little priests, following in the footsteps of Jesus, our Savior. Because of what he's done, Jesus deserves all praise. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The NLT says, All praise to him. Give to him everlasting glory. He rules forever and ever. Amen. Let it be so. And may it be. May this praise start with us right now. May you and I give him glory. May we not be able to help but have this, his praise overflow into our conversations. May we lift up songs of adoration even when we're separated. May our hearts, really more than anything, be overwhelmed by his grace and his peace and his love. He is king now. He can free us now and we can praise him now all in the present but a major thrust of revelation is that the present time is not all there is there is a future and that our visible viewpoints are not all there is to see there's way more than meets the eye but also that one day Jesus will our eyes. Look at what John says next, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, 
and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Mm. This is how I put the final point I believe we can see here. That Jesus Christ will be revealed to everyone by sight in his power. One day, Jesus will be revealed to everyone by sight in his power and in his might. Behold, he said, essentially, look, or pay attention. And that appears at least 25 times in Revelation. I like what Daryl Johnson says. says, the primary exhortation of Revelation is not trust and obey, but listen and look. It is a command, look, because John knows that if we can just see the full reality of the present, then we will have courage to overcome the powers of the age, and we will then follow Jesus Christ with reckless abandon. If we can just see it. So behold, look, so behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. Jesus will return, and he will do so publicly, visibly, and gloriously. No one's going to miss it. His return is going to be a global phenomenon. You will not wake up the next morning and wonder what all the hubbub is about. And find out, what? Jesus is back? I must have missed it as I was watching Netflix. No, everyone will see him. When it says that he's coming with the clouds, this is a reference to Daniel 7.13, where Daniel the prophet had a vision and said, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Mm. Which, by the way, was Jesus' favorite title. For himself, the Son of Man. And in the very next verse, Daniel's Son of Man figure was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and an everlasting kingdom at that, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Sound familiar? The focus here in Revelation 1-7, though, is on the negative response many will have to his return says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Every eye will see him, not just every living eye. John intentionally singles out those who, even those who pierced him, alluding to another messianic prophecy from Zechariah 12, but clearly referring to Jesus' crucifixion, where he was pierced. Most of those people who crucified Jesus were certainly dead by the time John wrote this. Didn't matter. They were going to see Jesus. And resurrection was coming after all. And all those who oppose God and his people will see him coming. And all those, including us, who spiritually speaking put Christ on the cross. Like, know this and be forewarned. Jesus will be fully vindicated in power for all the world to see. That's a wonderful thing. Leading ultimately to eternal joy. But not necessarily at first. Did you catch the end there where it says, And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Jesus' return will not be 
joyous and glorious for everyone. Many will weep. It's not clear whether these are tears of repentance and contrition or, or tears of sorrow and dread. Grant Osborne comments, it's likely that the reader is expected to see a repentance theme and a judgment theme. This ambiguity continues throughout the book as the conversion of the nations and the judgment of the nations develop side by side. Christ's return is imminent, and all peoples of the earth will see him and must respond. Here is one of the basic tensions of the book. The nations are the object of both mission and judgment. It is our task to participate in the former and to let God take care of the latter. Mm. And so, even in light of Christ's coming not being good news for everyone, we should agree at this point. Even so, amen. Even so, amen. So may it be. So shall it be. And verse 8 ends this passage off with a quote from God himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There are four descriptions of God in this one verse. Alpha and Omega, of course, are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. So he's the, he's the A to Z, or A to Z. God came first. He started it all, creating the cosmos. And God will come last. He'll end the world as we know it. But this title for God is more than just a statement of his eternality. It also reveals his sovereignty. Alpha and Omega don't just come first and last. Really, this is a saying that, can, that summarizes all the other letters in between. John clarifies that this is God, the, the Lord God, the one in charge of it all who's making these claims. Says, it, says the Lord God. And God then repeats the description of himself from earlier in verse 4. Who is and who was and who is to come. And he finishes it off by reminding us that he's the Almighty. He's all-powerful and supreme. Earthly powers might seem strong for now, but none of them are almighty. And all this should be of great encouragement to believers facing hardships right now. As Danny Aiken says, this God has absolute authority control and power. He is in control of this world and the next. This is no finite deity. This is a God who is victorious. This is a God you can trust. This is a God who will do what he promises. This is what we learn when God speaks from heaven. Jesus has been revealed for our blessing. He is revealed for his glory and will be revealed in his power. And as we hear all these things, the, the key applications for us are to pursue God's blessing that's available to, to us in his revealed word. To, to receive the grace and peace of the gospel of Christ. And to give him glory for it. And to be alert and ready for Jesus to return.
is the time that's near. And for how this impacts your daily life, today I'm not going to make super specific suggestions, but I will say that living our lives in light of Jesus' imminent return has far-reaching implications. The Holy Spirit could be challenging you about the way that you spend your time these days. He could be convicting you that you are not keeping his word right now. He could be moving you to, to use your earthly treasures in eternally focused ways. Whatever the case may be for you, however the Spirit is speaking to you, be sure to pay attention and to get ready. Because behold, he is coming with the clouds and you're going to see him. I'm going to see him. We're going to see him. We know Jesus is the Alpha already. We know him partly as the Beta, Gamma, Delta, etc. Now let's get to know him as the Omega, too. The, the be-all end all of everything right? the, the climax of all history the, and the culmination of our lives and our gracious reward let's pray Heavenly Father would you speak to us now and continue to speak your word to us to reassure us to encourage us Help us see your grace and your love so evident for us, especially in Christ. Pull back the curtain and help us to see reality as it really is. We pray in Jesus' name.